Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, tonight to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. And if you did not get communion elements when you came in for some reason, if you missed those, just raise a hand and someone will get you communion elements. We want to make sure that you have those as part of the service tonight. And so you can do that. Sin is a missing of the mark, a transgression of the line that God draws in the sand called his law that we are not supposed to cross. It is the iniquity that defiles us and causes us to be impure. Sin destroys when we are the ones doing it and it destroys when it is done to us. Just this week, Pastor Jim was teaching our students about sin. Even all the way back last Sunday, we were praying together as George and Jim and I do every Sunday morning before the service, which I just love, and he was asking for prayer for that teaching moment where he was going to be teaching about sin, and he was talking about what he wanted to inform the students as he worked through that really difficult topic. And something that he said all the way last Sunday morning stuck with me all throughout the whole week, right to this moment here tonight. He defines sin as the breaking of our relationship with the Father. The breaking of our relationship with our Father. That is the devastating consequence of sin. Broken fellowship, broken relationship, Broken communication, a barrier that gets raised between us and our Father. It's the problem that began all the way back in the Garden of Eden when the first Adam was exiled from God's presence because of his failure and sin. A problem that could only be solved by a greater and better Adam who would also go into a garden of Gethsemane into the presence of his father, and he would not fail. He would not give in to the temptation to run from what his father had called him and commanded him to do. And in this way, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Tonight, we're going to simply enter into the story told by an eyewitness whose name also happened to be Matthew. An eyewitness of the events in one man's life, abandoned by his friends and then abandoned by his father. And it's a story of how this man and what he did is the only answer to the problem of our sins and a broken relationship with God. It's a story that shows us how deeply the father loves us and reveals to us what I think our response should be to that love. Matthew chapter 26, verse 1. Then Jesus said to his disciples, As you know, Passover begins in two days, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Okay, so let's pause here for a second because 
This is not the first time he has said this, right? This is actually the fourth time that he has told them this, beginning all the way back in chapter 16 of the story. You can read it in Matthew's account and in chapter 17 and in chapter 20, giving very specific details that he is going to have to die and with the promise that he will rise again. And even as he speaks these words to the disciples, the wheels for his murder are already in motion because as we saw last week, right, he had initiated a confrontation with the religious leaders and the elders, the scribes, the Pharisees, so that at the same time, verse 3, the leading priests and elders were meeting at the residence of Caiaphas, the high priest, plotting how to capture Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the Passover celebration, they agreed, or people may riot. You know, not because it wouldn't be awful to plot the murder of someone, but because they don't want to have to deal with a riot. Meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. While he was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume and poured it over his head. The disciples were indignant when they saw this. What a waste, they said. It could have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, replied, why criticize this woman for doing such a good thing for me? You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. She has poured this perfume on me to prepare my body for, bur for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered. Prophecy fulfilled tonight and discussed. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 disciples, went to the leading priests and asked, how much will you pay me to betray Jesus to you? And they gave him 30 pieces of silver. From that time on, Judas began looking for an opportunity to, to betray Jesus. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the festival that you just heard about in Exodus 12, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to prepare the Passover meal for you? As you go into the city, he told them, okay, he's still arranging things like we saw last Sunday, right? I think he's, again, prearranged a place where they're going to eat. And he gives them the signal that they need to say, you'll see a certain man, tell him, the teacher says, my time has come and I will eat the Passover meal with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus told them and prepared the Passover meal there. When it was evening, Jesus sat down at the table with the 12. While they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Greatly distressed, each one asked in turn, am I the one Lord? I mean, you can imagine that, right? Can you imagine the hushed tones of conversation between the disciples? Who's it gonna be? Did he just say that someone's gonna betray him? It's gonna be one of us? Is it, who do you think it is? Jesus replied, one of you who has just eaten from this bowl with me will betray me for the son of man must die as the scriptures declared long ago. Now it's the fifth time that he has predicted his death, but this time he adds, you should have seen it. The scriptures talked about this. It shouldn't be a shock to you. You know the story. You've heard the prophets. 
but how terrible it will be, he goes on, for the one who betrays him. It would be far better for that man if he had never been born. Judas, the one who betrayed him, also asked, Rabbi, am I the one? And Jesus told him, you have said it. And as they were eating, Jesus took some bread and he blessed it. And he broke it in pieces and he handed it out to his disciples saying, take, eat, for this is my body. So take the bread and we eat in remembrance of Jesus. Now, while you're chewing, I want you to imagine how shocked the disciples are in this moment because since they were children, they had been hearing Exodus 12. They knew exactly how Passover was supposed to go so that when Jesus says, take this bread, that's not a surprise. But when he says, this is my body, again, I think they're turning to each other in hushed tones. Did he just say this is his body? Is he changing the script of Passover that for thousands of years we've been celebrating at the strict command of Yahweh himself? And he took a cup of wine and he gave thanks to God for it and he gave it to them and he said, each of you drink from it for this is my blood which confirms the covenant between God and his people it is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many mark my words I will not drink this wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom so take the juice and drink in remembrance of Christ Now again, see, this is hard for us. You, you have to kind of put your mind into a situation where there's some tradition that you have celebrated for years in your family and all of a sudden someone starts leading that tradition and does it very differently, right? And you're kind of like, hey, what's up? Because now he's done that again. This is the lamb that they had slaughtered and that's what atones for sacrifices. And now Jesus is saying, this is my blood. Not the blood of a lamb, but the blood of the Son of God. Another shift in the story. It is my blood that will confirm the covenant between the Father and his children. It is my blood that will be once and for all a sacrifice poured out to forgive the sins of many. And again, they should have known this because they know Jeremiah chapter 31 that says there will be a new covenant and new blood, a forever covenant where I will write my law on your hearts. See, the predictions are being fulfilled. Jesus is arranging things and grabbing hold of the expectations. All of it coming together, hurtling towards a climactic conclusion. But do they see it? Then they sang a hymn and went out to the mount 
of olives. After they were done singing on the way, Jesus told them, tonight, all of you will desert me. For the scriptures say, God will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. Peter, blowing completely through his sixth declaration of his death and resurrection, declared, even if everyone deserts you, I will never desert you. And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter. This very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you even know me. No, Peter insisted, no. Even if I have to die for you, I will never deny you. And all the other disciples vowed the exact same thing. Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and he said, sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. And he told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here. Keep watch with me. And he went on a little farther and he bowed his face to the ground praying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. This is why his soul is crushed because of a cup of suffering that lies before him. The story goes on. Then he returned to the disciples and found them asleep. He said to Peter, couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray. Pray so that you will not give in to temptation for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Then Jesus left them a second time and prayed, I believe, because he too was being tempted to turn away from the cross that lied before him. And so he prayed, my father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. What is all this talk of a cup I thought he was going to a cross. You see, the prophets had used the imagery of a cup for God's wrath and anger falling in righteous judgment on sinners and rebels. That the entirety of his wrath in line with humanity's sin would be poured into a cup and the unrighteous would have to drink from that cup every last drop of his judgment. This is the cup that Jesus sees on his knees in Gethsemane. The physical suffering of the cross, while gruesome, is not what Jesus is afraid of. It's the cup. A cup he stares into where he sees the sins of every human to ever live. 
and the wine of his father's wrath swirling in a mix that he'll have to drink. When he returned to the disciples again, verse 43, he found them sleeping for they couldn't keep their eyes open. So he went to pray a third time saying the same things. Let this cup pass, Father. Not my will, thy will be done. And then he came to the disciples and said, go go ahead and sleep. Have your rest. Oh, but look, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up, let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. And even as Jesus said this, Judas, one of the 12 disciples, arrived with a crowd of men armed with swords and clubs. They had been sent by the leading priests and elders of the people. The traitor, Judas, had given them a prearranged signal. So Jesus isn't the only one arranging things. Satan is also arranging things, but we know because we're studiers of our Bible that it's only at the hands of our Father, Acts chapter 2. God is the one who's ordained all of this to come to pass. You will know which one to arrest when I greet him with a kiss, said Judas. So he came straight to Jesus. Greetings, Rabbi, he exclaimed and gave him the kiss. Jesus said, my friend, go ahead and do what you have come for. Then the others grabbed Jesus and arrested him. And one of the men with Jesus pulled out his sword and struck the high priest's slave, slashing off his ear. Put away your sword, Jesus said. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. Don't you realize that I could ask my father for thousands of angels and he would send them in an instant? But if I did that, how would the scriptures be fulfilled that describe what must happen now? As you see, he just keeps orchestrating the events, playing the part, wearing the mantle, fulfilling the Father's every expectation of him to seal a covenant by his blood. Verse 55, then Jesus said to the crowd, am I some dangerous revolutionary that you come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there teaching every day. But all of this is happening to fulfill the words of the prophets as recorded in the scriptures. And at that point, every one of his disciples deserted him and fled. And Jesus was abandoned alone. Very early on Friday morning, chapter 27, the leading priests and the elders of the people met again to lay plans for putting Jesus to death. Then they bound him, led him away, and took him to Pilate, the Roman governor. Verse 11, now Jesus was standing before Pilate, the Roman governor. Are you the king of the Jews? The governor asked him. Jesus replied, you have said it. But when the leading priests and the elders made their accusations against him, Jesus remained silent. 
Don't you hear all these charges that they are bringing against you, Pilate demanded? But Jesus made no response, fulfilling the words of Isaiah in his prophecy, chapter 53. He made no response to any of the charges, much to the governor's surprise. Now, it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner to the crowd, anyone they wanted. This year, there was a notorious prisoner, a man named Barabbas. As the crowds gathered before Pilate's house that morning, he asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? He knew very well that the religious leaders had arrested Jesus out of envy. Just then, as Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him this message, leave that innocent man alone. I suffered through a terrible nightmare about him last night. Meanwhile, the leading priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas to be released and for Jesus to be put to death. So after the message from his wife, the governor asks again, which of these two do you want me to release to you? And the crowd shouted back, Barabbas! Pilate responded, then what, what should I do with this Jesus who is called Messiah? They shouted back, crucify him! Why? Pilate demanded, what crime has he committed? But the mob roared even louder. Crucify him! Pilate saw that he wasn't getting anywhere and that a riot was developing and so he sent for a bowl of water and he washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. The responsibility is yours. And all the people yelled back, we will take responsibility for his death and our children. So Pilate released Barabbas to them, and he ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip. And then he turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified, thus fulfilling exactly what he said would happen in chapter 20, verse 19. Some of the governor's soldiers took Jesus into their headquarters and called out the entire regiment. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. They wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head. They placed a reed stick in his right hand as a scepter. They knelt before him in mockery and taunted, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him grabbed a stick out of his hand and struck him on the head with it. And when they finally tired of mocking him, they took off the robe and they put his own clothes on him again and they led him away to be crucified. Along the way, they came across a man named Simon who was from Cyrene and the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross and they went out to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And the soldiers there gave Jesus wine mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he refused to drink it. And after they had nailed him, 
to the cross. The soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. They sat around and kept guard as he hung there. And a sign was fastened above his head announcing the charge against him. It read, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. Two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. People were passing by, shouting abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, if you are the son of God, save yourself and come down from the cross. The leading priests and teachers of religious law and the elders also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed. But he can't save himself. So he is the king of Israel, is he? Let him come down from the cross right now and we will believe in him. He trusted God, so let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the revolutionaries who were crucified with him ridiculed him in the same way. Have you ever wondered what Jesus was thinking as he hung there on the cross? I wonder if maybe his mind was going back to Matthew's story, his story, chapter 3, when as they mocked him about being the son of God. I wonder if he was remembering that beautiful moment when he came up from baptismal waters and the sky opened up and the Holy Spirit descended as a dove. And he heard the voice of his father. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. As they scoff and mock his sonship. I wonder if he was thinking about the thousands of angels that he could call. It wouldn't even take a word. All he would have to do is think it and every person abusing him and mocking him would be annihilated by an army of fierce angels. But if that would be the cry that he would utter on the cross, if he cried out for a thousand angels, save your beloved son, There would be no blood of the covenant for the forgiveness of sins. There would be no ransom. There would be no salvation from sin. There would be no theological basis for our healing. There would be no gospel of the kingdom to be proclaimed to nations everywhere. There would be no fulfillment of all of the scriptures and all of the prophecies. So he will not cry out for angels, but he will. He will cry out. At noon... Verse 45, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. At about three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? 
which means my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Oh, dear family, do not miss what Jesus endures here. On that dark midday, at the place of the skull, when the sun refused to shine, the unimaginable and indescribable happened. The beautiful, shining, loving face of the Father that had declared his love for all eternity past, a son and father sharing perfect fellowship Before time began, a love that was expressed for the world to hear at his baptism for the first time in an eternity of existence together, in perfect relationship, a barrier rises up between the Father and the Son. Broken relationship. Broken fellowship. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns His face away as wounds which mar the Chosen One bring many sons to glory. Why? Why is Jesus abandoned? Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Do you see? A holy God cannot allow sin in His presence. A holy God cannot commune with impurity. A holy God cannot entertain a transgression. And in this moment, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the one who knew no sin, was made sin for us. In this moment, Jesus is consumed and enveloped in the darkness of the sins of billions of people upon thousands of years. Self-sufficiency, self-righteousness, selfish ambition, 
greed, laziness, gluttony, slandering, gossip, lying, conceit, ungratefulness, adultery, sexual immorality, pornography, vulgarity, idolatry, homosexual passions, dressing immodestly, lusting after what is forbidden, full-hearted love for perverse pleasure, hatred directed toward others, social media bombing, abortion, oppression of the poor, dismissal of the needy, ignoring the widow, loving money and prestige and honor, hypocrisy, covetousness, envy, politically fueled rage, bigotry, racism, bitterness, unforgiveness, never being slow to speak, always willing to use a razor tongue to lash out and cut another with criticism and sin-filled judgment, mockery and disobedience to parents, no self-control, a divider who stirs up factions, drunkenness, thievery, anxiety, worry, cowardice, unbelief, pride. This is the cup that he prayed would pass in Gethsemane. The cup of God's wrath for all those sins and more. And for three hours, he drinks scalding hot liquid of God's wrath. While the Father turns the brightness of the Son of His countenance away. Think of the blessing that they'd heard as a boy. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. He had experienced that countenance for an eternity. And now it's gone. And I think there's something even more horrific in this moment because the wickedness of hell and the brightness of heaven exist outside of time. So I believe that in this moment, it is not that Jesus is merely experiencing three hours of the abandonment of the Father, of broken relationship with the Father. I believe that Jesus is experiencing an eternality of the abandonment of his Father in those three hours. An eternal experience of the wrath of God, right? Doesn't that make sense? Isn't that what he's paying for? In this moment, Jesus feels eternally and utterly lost. (sighs) Do you see now why he screams? why he cries out in agony. Please take in. Please look at me. Please take in what Jesus has done for us. He is experiencing the eternal abandonment of the Father so that you don't have to. So that you could eternally experience the shining countenance of the Father, the delight of the Father in a kingdom that Jesus is going to bring about because he's going to rise from the dead and conquer the grave. And he's coming back. He's going to bring a new heavens and a new earth. 
And you will never have to drink the cup of God's wrath. I wonder, what, what is your response to that? When you see this act of the deep, deep love of the Father conspiring with the Son to save you. This past Sunday, I, I spoke to you about met and unmet expectations. Do, do you remember that? Met and unmet expectations. I said, we've all known what it feels like to not meet somebody's expectations, right? And then to feel all the disappointment that can kind of come back and sometimes anger that can come back at you when you haven't met someone's expectations because of your failure, maybe because of your sin. And I think, I think it's true that Many of you, if not all of you, carry around that kind of baggage, namely unmet expectations with God as your father. See, we, we look at our sin, right? And then we, we look at him and we feel like because of our sin, we haven't met the expectations of the father, his right expectation of goodness and righteousness. And that our sin and our failure then creates this barrier of relationship that we can't get through. And in, and in one sense, as Pastor Jim taught the students this last week, that's very true. There is a breaking of relationship. But the danger that I think can happen for us in that moment when we're sensing and feeling that unmet expectation is that we forget the cross of Christ. And we can think See, the cross gets over here forgotten and we think, okay, I, I got to figure out, I've got this thing now and I got to pay for that. I got to earn my way back. I got to somehow meet some expectations so the scales balance out and we can be in relationship and you'll be happy with me. Let me give you another way that I think that this plays out at ground level, Okay. Right? We're the place where safety, good, lots of good news, safety in time, right? T working out at complicated levels. So let me try and dig a little bit in the complication of who we are. I'll hear Christians say, you know, at the end of my life, I just want to hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And I'll hear them say, I just want to hear Jesus say that. Just want to hear him say that. And here's what troubles me when I hear someone say, I just want to hear Jesus say that. Do you think you're not going to hear that? Because if you believe in Jesus, you are going to hear that. Everyone who is trusting in Jesus is going to hear that. You don't have to earn his approval because your trust in him secures his approval. Because you are made a son and a daughter by faith. So that the Father declares over you just as much as he declared over Jesus at his baptism, you are my beloved Son, you are my beloved daughter, and with you, I am well pleased. Do you see? 
Are, are you following? Yay. <laughs> you see, in Jesus, who met every expectation that the Father had of him, in Jesus, we meet every expectation that the Father has of us. Everyone. Okay, we're coming to the end. How many people have seen the movie Saving Private Ryan? Okay, a lot of you. Fantastic, this should work. <laughs> okay, so Saving Private Ryan is the story of this platoon of soldiers who's sent to usher this private named Ryan out of the darkness of war into the shining presence of his mother and father. And near the end of this movie, with the Germans bearing down on them, Tom Hanks, who plays the captain of this platoon, to save Private Ryan, is on the other side of a bridge. The Germans are advancing over the other side of the bridge, and Hanks is holding the detonator that's going to blow the bridge to save them all. And he gets shot. And he's sitting on the ground. But he blows, he blows the bridge, right? They, they're saved. And, and Ryan runs up to him and he sees him and he's, and he's bleeding out on the ground, right? Like his blood is just pouring out on the ground. And he's shaking. And he's trying to say something. And, and Ryan gets a little bit closer to him, right? You remember this moment? And he, and he grabs him by the shirt and he's... And he's he utters these damnable words. Earn this. Earn it. And then he dies. And as the movie ends, we see Private Ryan transformed into an old man standing at the grave of this captain who had bled for his salvation. And with tears in his eyes, he kneels on his grave and he says, every day I think about what you said to me on that bridge. I've tried to live my life the best that I could. I hope that it was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes, I've earned what all of you did for me. And as his wife comes to his side, he, he pleads with her, tell me I've lived a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. You see, friends, family, every time we doubt the approval of the Father, of us who believe in Jesus, that there is somehow some unmet expectation yet to be fulfilled, to open up a pathway to relationship with him, that we need to earn all that he has done for us to be seen as acceptable in his eyes. Every time we do that, we're acting as if God is standing there, having slaughtered his son, grabbing the lapels of our shirts and saying, earn this. Earn it. No! Our approval, your approval, is not contingent on anything but Jesus. That's what this table is about. That blood, that body, 
This is not somber Friday, all right? This is not dreary Friday. This is not so-so kind of Friday. This is good Friday, right? Well, I didn't hear you. This is good Friday, and the reason it's good is because of the other thing that Jesus screamed on the cross. Maybe you remember it. It is finished. The work is done. There is nothing left to be done for our sin. There is nothing left to be paid. There is no other work to be rendered so that when we sin, and you will sin, maybe driving home because she says something and it irritates you. Or he does something and it irritates you. We will sin. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We will sin. But friends, we have an advocate before the Father, the cup drinking, wrath-bearing advocate who is named who? Jesus. He's made propitiation. He's removed the wrath of all of our sin so that we can sing with gusto. Worship team, will you come up? So that we can sing, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Okay, let's stand up and sing the whole thing together, all right? Let's do it.